Welcome to Newcastle Libraries Real. Newcastle Libraries can be accessed from wherever you live with the Newcastle Library app. Put borrowing at your fingertips. I invite you to close your eyes and imagine. Imagine that there are no buildings, no roads, no cars, just the trees, plants, animals and the very first storytellers of this land, the Awabakal and Waramai people. So I acknowledge them as the traditional custodians of this beautiful land in which we live. Welcome to Newcastle Libraries, your summer stories. Welcome to Newcastle Libraries Real. This is your sixth podcast in the Your Summer Story series. Natasha Lester's new novel, The Riviera House, takes us from occupied Paris during Second World War to the beautiful French Riviera in modern times. Our guest host, Nola Wallace, talks to Natasha about how she ended up there. I have to tell you, I loved the book. Oh, thank you. I really did. Well, it touched on so many things that really appealed to me. Um, oh, that's so nice to hear because sometimes I do these interviews and people haven't actually read the book, so it's actually oh. nice that it was someone who's not only read it but enjoyed it. it I love the French. I love, like, even though there were only like um, spasmodic words in French, it read French, if that makes any sense. But I, oh, I, I just loved it. Only when I got towards the end, I had to put it away because I thought, I'm not going to like what happens. <laughs> Oh no, no, but I I loved, and because the history, um, I knew the story about the woman at um, the Louvre who, I I mean, an amazing woman. Yeah, Yeah, she was. Rose was incredible. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) But you have a, you've had an amazing life, you know, and I love the gown that, I have to say this, I love the gown that's on your web page. It's love. It's either navy or black, and I thought, oh, that's just so divine. <laughs> that's, a, that's a vintage dress, um, which yeah. is why it's probably why it's so divine. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but uh, but there is nothing like the vintage. I mean, the twenties, thirties, forties. I mean, uh, it's just so lovely, and yeah. yeah. So, did you? You've read a, read uh, written a couple of books, haven't you, about Paris? And yes, I have. So, my first book about Paris was the Paris Seamstress, which was published in two thousand and eighteen, and then I've written a book after that called The French Photographer, which has a part of the storyline in Paris, but also throughout Europe, in fact. And then the Paris Secret was last year, which again is partly set in Paris. And But this one, Riviera House, is definitely my first one that's set all in Paris, basically. All yes. Of yeah. yeah. But I loved the um, I loved the way you connected uh, Remy um, in Australia with the story. Uh, and, uh, and the fact that she had that painting in her bedroom, you know. Um, and Xavier is a very interesting man. <laughs> I fell in love with him and Adam. I fell in love with both of them, you know. But um, you've done a lot of research in that because 1941 was such an important year for the French when you think, well, for everybody in, in Europe, I suppose, but they were facing such dreadful stuff. Yes, they were. And, um, I mean, there was so much research to do for this book, you know, when you're tackling a subject like, um, the theft of the artworks. Yes. You've really got to make sure you 
cover everything and that you're sensitive obviously to the fact because there are still families with paintings missing um so there was a lot to wade through in archives and also on the ground in paris and in france as i made my way around the country in my character's footsteps which was lots of fun as well so yes it was i enjoyed the research so i think you need to as a historical novelist oh i think so um because if well it's so easy isn't it to skip something that's vitally important. And I just loved the way the a German fellow, um, I can't Panic. think of it. Yes. Um, yes. <laughs> didn't like him, but, you know, I, I sympathised with the fact that he was caught in that whole Nazi thing. Um, and, I mean, how many of us would be strong enough to stand up, uh, to be in a, a, a Xavier or... Um, Elaine, I mean... Yeah, I really wanted to look at, you know, the decisions and choices that people do make when not just their lives are on the line, but the lives of their families are on the line as well. Because I think it's very different when you're just risking yourself, but Mm. when you're risking the lives of all all of your loved ones, you know, because in 1942, as happens in the book, the Germans did um, institute that law whereby anyone caught resisting would not only be arrested themselves, but their whole families, no matter if their families weren't involved in any way, they would all be arrested and tortured and killed as well. So I think that makes it a very different um, decision when you are thinking, well, actually, what I do could end the life of my innocent child, sister, brother, father, Mm -hmm. mother. So not, and not just for, you know, the French people, I wanted to look at that uh, battle between doing the right thing and surviving, but also for the Germans, because it was the same in a way, I guess, for them. Although, um, you know, for a number of years, obviously they had the power, which makes their choices perhaps more difficult to understand sometimes. So, so yeah, I want to, and it just, I mean, it's just simple things that I thought about when I was writing the book, uh, and particularly Eliane's character, where, you know, just something as simple as, a walk down a street can lead to those kinds of choices. You know, what does it say about you if you smile at the German soldier? And what does it say about you if you don't? And what are the repercussions for you if you do or you don't? So it wasn't just that they made big choices about resisting, but small choices every day as well. I mean, even just getting when the baby is going to be changed. Um, yes. And then uh, when they realise that, well, they suspect that she's the the um, lover of a German, the reaction is instant, isn't it? It's like spitting on her and, yeah. Absolutely. And particularly, you know, at that time, you know, in 1944, when the tide had started to turn, those things became, um, you know, where in some ways a certain level of collaboration was was tolerated in the early years of the war when the tide started to turn, any form of collaboration wasn't. And it was really the women after the war, you know, throughout September, October, November, 1944 in Paris who suffered terribly for things that often they had done to save their family. You know, if you were a mother with six children and there were things you needed to do to get food for them, then, you know, it's not necessarily collaborating. It's actually, you know, helping keep alive people you love. So um, I wanted to kind of look at that as well because I think wartime life was very different for women than it was for men. And often the aftermath of that 
valued what the men had been through but didn't value what in fact the women had been through and had had suffered during the war yeah i just think that um what what really came across too was every time that anyone went into the uh, to the louvre museum and they had to go through that uh, having their past showed there was a feeling in the book of the not only the hesitancy but will I get by? Will will my past get me get me through? And I think that's that's in the writing. That's uh, I think you created such tension. You know, when you read and you think, oh my god, I don't want to turn the page. What if you know? And I do that a lot. I mean, I really fall in love with a book, and like on your your web page when you said you wanted to, you were always wanted to write. And as a child. To, to wonder if people got lost in books like you did. Well, I certainly do, even now. That's uh, so lovely to hear because it literally is why I write, um, mm-hmm. to try and recreate that feeling. Because I do when I read as well. I'm immersed in the book. I am wherever it takes place in whatever time period yes. and write alongside those characters no matter what happens. It's not just something I can easily you know, pick up and put down. I am immersed for the entire time. So it's lovely to hear that that happened for you because when you're writing it of course you know when you're writing a book you love your characters and you you are immersed in the story but you never quite know whether that's just you um you know being delusional (laughs) 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 or or whether readers will respond to those (laughs) your summer stories are available anytime anywhere just download the newcastle libraries app and access your summer stories plus thousands just like them today. Well, when I was talking to um, to a friend of mine, she said, uh, it's a historical romance. And I said, look, it might be classified as that, but I don't see it as an historical romance. I think it's, it, it's the accuracy um, with the historical sections are just so good. I always try to always have a love story in my books because I think that's really important, particularly in war times. Otherwise, you, you know, it's the stories can become just very bleak. And I think particularly yeah. over this last year and a half or two years, people want a little bit of light as well in the dark. So, uh, you know, that's something I've always tried to do. And I think love is such a big part of people's lives that it makes sense to have those kinds of storylines in there. But I always hope that that's one of the secondary storylines and the main storyline is about a woman doing something quite remarkable for her time in history because those are the kinds of stories that I really like to write and there were so many women who have been overlooked by history and whose stories have been forgotten like Rose Valland in a way who is one of the real characters in the book I don't think enough people know about her and you know what always strikes me is when I went to France to do the research back in 2018 um one of the paintings hanging now in the Louvre is Vermeer's Astronomer, which was owned by Edouard de Rothschild during the war and was one of the paintings that the Nazis stole. It transited through the Jeux de Pont Museum, was one of the paintings that Rose recorded in her secret notebooks and she recorded when it arrived at the museum and where it was sent to. And then she found it later after the war in the Neuschwanstein Castle and returned it to the Rothschild family. And then Edouard donated it to the Louvre subsequently. And, you know, you can walk past that painting in the Louvre now. And to many people, it's just a Vermeer painting, which, and he's obviously very famous, so they mm-hmm. admire the artistry. But, 
you know, you turn the painting over and there's a swastika stamped on its back because of the fact it did go through the jus de pomme. And so many people don't know that. And that rose, the reason it's hanging in the Louvre now is because of Rose Valland. And, you know, why don't we know that? Well, uh, when I was talking to, to this friend of mine, I just said, you know, there's this fantastic story in the beginning of the book about the woman who saved, uh, tried to save the paintings from being stolen. And she said, from who? I said, well, most of the artwork that was uh, belonged to Jewish families. So, um, and they were regarded as nothing. So, um, Hitler and Goering want they they wanted what they wanted, and they knew the value of them, and they just took them. And this wonderful woman, this wonderful woman, had this, the courage to to make notes on it. I mean, I don't think I'd have that sort of courage, Natasha. I really don't. Oh, I agree. It's one of the things I always think about when I'm writing because, of course, you know, we know now, decades later, that the war was going to end and the occupation was going to end, but she didn't know that. You know, from the time she started recording all of that in 1940, she she might have been doing it for 10 years or 20 years or forever. You know, she had no knowledge that at some time she would actually be able to use those secret notebooks and use them to restore those paintings. It was this huge act of faith. And, you know, she, as in the book, she gets fired a number of times from the museum and that actually happened to her in real life. They fired Mm. her and because, you know, she played the part so well of this demure, quiet woman who just uh, stayed in the background, um, she would just sneak back into the museum two weeks later and they would forget that they'd fired her. And so she, you know, she could have, any other person would have after being fired once, not gone back. They would have said, okay, well, I tried, but now I've been fired and that's it. But she didn't. She said, no, I'm going to go back. And not just once, but four times. You know, even though, as again happens in the book, you know, Colonel von Burr said to her at one point, he was going to take her to the border and liquidate her. You know, he, he threatened to kill her, but she still kept going back and pretending she didn't speak German and spying on them and recording everything they were doing because she knew that she was the only person who knew what they were doing and that if she didn't write it down... Nobody else would, know. Look, with the second, the second story, with Remy, I loved the connection with the two brothers. I mean, mind you, I fell madly in love with Adam. I thought he was divine. When I thought, Remy, you've got to take... You've got to get this man. Don't let him escape, you know. <laughs> but, but her story was really, um, was really lovely as well. I loved writing that story because I think, as I say, you know, there is a lot of darkness in a war story, mm. so then having a contemporary storyline threaded in that's set in a beautiful home on the French Riviera and particularly now when no one can travel anywhere. I think it's a nice kind of way to escape vicariously to the French Riviera and, um, you know, those characters were great actually. Sometimes characters can be quite hard to get onto the page but Adam and, and Remy in particular were, like I say, I keep saying they were gifts from the writing muse. They were quite easy to get on the page and um, I fell a bit in love with both of them too. Yes. So. <laughs> and when you are writing, do you have the like the whole book in your head or do you just, do you let the characters talk to you? Like how do they evolve? Yes, I have very long conversations with my characters. <laughs> um, <laughs> I am unfortunately not the kind of writer who can plan a story in advance and who knows what I'm doing when I sit down to write. I would love to be that kind of writer, but I've tried and my creativity thrives in chaos and it likes to just 
give me the start of an idea. So when I'm sitting down to write, like I knew I was going to write about um, a woman who would work alongside Rose Valland at the Jeu de Pomme and that she would help spy on the Nazis and that she had a, a big family and that there was going to be some connection to a painting from Goering's catalogue in a contemporary storyline, which would be set on the French Riviera. And that was pretty much all I knew. So then it's a matter of really fleshing that out because that's a very skinny outline. It certainly doesn't feel... 130,000 words like the story does in the end. Yeah. So it's really just um, the story unfolds for me page by page in the same way it does for a reader, which in some ways I guess is nice because I always feel like if the story surprises me with where it goes, then hopefully it will then also surprise the reader. It is also very stressful though, because I never know for sure that I'm going to be able to tie everything together at the end and make it sort of have a conclusion. I'm always worried that you know it'll it won't end um, or I won't know how to end it or it might go off on, a, on the wrong tangent um, so it's it's a bit of an act of faith the writing in that first draft just turning up every day and getting some words down and hoping it all leads somewhere and then I do a lot of rewriting because that first draft is naturally quite messy um, and then in the rewriting it sort of you know gets polished and the research gets laid in and it becomes more like the actual finished book. <laughs> I loved the the um, the house I want to go there. <laughs> So it is actually based on a real house. There's a house actually in St. John Kapkara, which is the town that the Riviera House contemporary storyline is set in. And the house once uh, is called the Villa of Frosted de Rothschild. So if anyone Ooh. listening wants to go and Google photographs, just Google that. So Beatrice de Rothschild owned the house and she built it. And it's you can go and visit it. It's open to the public, of course, when you were allowed to go back to France, we can do that. <laughs> yeah. um, and I went through it in 2018. And I went there because I hoped it might be able to be a model for the house in my book or inspire some ideas for me when I was writing it. Um, but it was so beautiful that I basically just copied it. Um, so it's, it's this pink house, like the house in the book. And yeah. I mean, a pink house has got a lot going for it from the yeah. outset. Yeah. Um, and it, all of the features that you read about in the book, like the water cascades leading up to the love temple at the top mm -hmm. of the hill, which is a copy of the Petit Trinon at Versailles, that's all actually there. And the, it's got musical fountains that dance in time to music and lots of garden rooms um, as per the book. And it looks out over the water um around St John so it's all very much based on that actual house yes oh it, it the description was just divine it really was and I, the only thing is Natasha I need an Adam there <laughs> yes oh me too <laughs> lying in the sun lounger yeah <laughs> I mean, um, so you can tell that I really loved this book, and and the characters. Uh, look, the the one character that shocked me was the brother in the first in the first story in the in the war story. But you understand, you understand why, because of all the things you've said about the fact that they don't know what what's happening the next day, and they have to live, they have to survive. Her sacrifice. Should I tell any of the story in this interview? I, I, don't, I don't know. Maybe we just flag that this might be a spoiler. So if you haven't read the book, just to fast yes. forward this. Yes. <laughs> but certainly um, I would recommend the book to anyone um, who loves historical things, who the beauty of the description of the vintage clothing. I mean, oh, I was, I was right there, you know. I mean, I just love fashion and so yes. 
I always think that if it's something that you love, your passion for it hopefully shows through in the writing. And um, I always jokingly say that I give my characters in the contemporary storylines jobs that I wish that I could have if I wasn't a writer. So I'd quite love to own Remy's vintage closet myself and to be able to just dive in and dress myself in any of those outfits on any day. (laughs) But, you know, the description you've given to the clothing, you can see it. You know, when, when, is it Lauren, the uh, Adam's sister? Um, I mean, she, actually, I felt very akin to her, the, the way she was always very explosive about her, um, about what she liked. Yeah, she was a fun character to write. And, um, you know, she had a particular love of, of Remy's vintage fashion as well. <laughs> so you've got to love a woman who loves vintage fashion. Exactly, exactly. She's up there. She's up there with uh, with a favourite character, I think. Yeah. Create your own summer stories with Newcastle Libraries through our incredible collections, e-learning resources and summer programs. Find out more at the Newcastle Libraries app or website. Your next book, what's your next book? Are you writing a new one or? I am. In fact, I have um, it right in front of me now, printed out as I'm going through and editing it. So the next one is about women's lives post-war, partly because whilst World War II was a huge time of change for women, it was a time where they, in some cases, you know, gained a lot of independence, earned money, took on these roles as spies and resistance and, you know, risked their lives. And then after the war, the government began to run propaganda campaigns, encouraging all women to abandon their jobs, return to the home, mm. cook roasted dinners for their husbands and leave the jobs open for the returning men. And I just, I've always thought for years, how would that have felt to have had that happen when, you know, let's say you'd been spying during the war and, and, you know, being so important and then suddenly being told that your place is in the kitchen. So the book is partly about that shift for women and it's told through the eyes of the public relations director, a woman who runs the public relations at the House of Christian Dior in 1947 (laughs) as the house opens. Um, And it's also about war, the war, World War II in Italy and Switzerland, which I think are theatres of war that haven't been written about very much yet. Mm. So that was interesting to explore too. It's it's interesting you should mention Christian Dior because um, I remember when I was a teenager, I bought home a pattern for a dress and and I suppose it would have been classified as vintage, like 1950. Um, To me, that would be vintage. And uh, at that time, and mum said, oh, you know, when Christian Dior had his first showing and mum only saw it at the movies, you know, at a news thing, she said it was so beautiful, all the material and it was full and it was long and we could wear our high, our high heel shoes. And I just said, I just was only thinking as I was reading your book, women really did it hard, no materials, no, and the the clothing was very, very basic. And as you were saying that how the women had to leave their jobs and get back to the kitchen, I think that must have been... You Could you imagine that happening today? No. You know, imagine the government running an advertising campaign saying that. You know, yes. we would hope it wouldn't happen today. Although the thing about history is it does tend to repeat itself quite a lot. So, but I just... I would have, you know... Would have been soul destroying. In the war, they had a purpose. 
other than being a mother and 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 a wife which are all really important things but for many women they wanted to have other things as well as those um so yeah it's been a it's been a really fun book try in fact you know I didn't actually necessarily set out like this, but I would say it's almost probably my most feminist book that I've ever written because it is so much about that idea of, you know, women being told what they should do yeah. for so many years. And in fact, you know, still are, let's look at Texas in the US oh. where, you know, uh, so it's still happening. Yes, <laughs> yes. I mean, history never ends. <laughs> I mean, all the abortions, the new abortion laws that have come through, I mean. Exactly. Yeah. It's so foreign. Isn't it to, to modern thinking? It's extraordinarily awful. Yeah. So when is your new book? Is it hasn't been published yet, has it? You haven't finished. No. Yet? Um. I think it will be out in September two thousand and twenty-two. That's next year, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> September next year, I think. I don't have a firm publication date yet because oh. everything keeps moving around because of COVID. So, uh, but roughly speaking, it'll be around then. <laughs> right. Okay. Oh, look. I can. Well, I've got to go and read your other books. Uh, before I get to that one. <laughs> oh, you've got quite a backlist to choose from, so yes. I hope you enjoy that. Look, I will, uh, because, uh, you know, it's very—it's not very often you get a book um, or a writer that you really like, that you, you know, you, you're really in tune with. And because um, I've, I've read a couple of books this year simply because the library's closed, I've got people are lending me books, but oh, oh dear, you know, because I've been lent books by people who are really, they're wonderful friends, but it's just that we're on a different path, you know. Yes, um, yeah. And this year I've got into crime. I just really... Yeah, right. Okay. And the amazing Australian right, women yes, who are writing yes. crime, you know. But, we have um, some brilliant Aussie female crime writers here. We're oh, very yeah. lucky. Yeah. Well, when I when I said to this friend of mine, I'm interviewing you, and, oh, where does she, where does she live? I said, she's Australian. Really? Really? I said, you you need to get away from the television yes. <laughs> and go and search out the female writers because right across all the genres, um, they're fascinating and the stories are just so good. Um, yeah. But definitely, yeah, my heart was definitely in this book. I definitely want to go to the Riviera house. Um, yes. You, you know, I, if, if uh, when I can travel, you know, and I don't care how I travel as long as, <laughs> as, long as I can get to the Riviera house, you know. Uh, uh, you're still into vintage clothing though, aren't you? Like I am. I did for a year, a couple of years ago, I tried to only buy vintage and secondhand, um, apart from certain items like underwear, obviously. Yeah. Um, so, but I still do collect, I don't, it's actually quite time consuming to find good pieces mm. so um, this year has been very busy and I haven't really had time to do so much of that but um, I do still love it and still collect it as and when I can I'm quite partial to the 1950s and 1940s uh, kind of my eras of of love so I have a few pieces from there as well as in fact I've ever, I actually do have a, a Christian Dior from the 1970s in fact um, oh, which is quite Gorgeous, yeah. <laughs> I love your description of the um of the dress, the black dress. I think it is in the in the nineteen forties, and also Remy's dress when Adam is taking the photo. And uh, I just thought, oh look, I can just see that. Yeah, I can, if only I could wear that. If only. Yes. I, could wear that. <laughs> um, I do a bit of um, 
fashion painting as well. I learned, I started to learn last year the art of fashion illustration and um, I've actually done a painting of Eliane in that black, I'm looking over there because it's on my wall over there, oh, of nice. Eliane in the black dress from the book, um, which actually is on my Instagram page, I think. So if people oh, want to see that, they can scroll through my Instagram feed. It might be um, a little way down or actually I think it's in my highlights. So they can probably click through there and find it on Instagram. I just love the fact that you're able to use all your your talents, you know, not just for writing but and your enthusiasm for everything. I think that that transfers into your writing and I think that's that's what um, really captured me, I think, you know, your enthusiasm. I think it's good to draw on all aspects of your life when you are writing and, I mean, I call, I call myself a very amateur fashion historian because it's just been something I've loved, you know, really since probably the 90s when I started collecting fashion history books and mm. actively going to museums and looking out fashion collections. And, you know, the very first time I wrote a historical novel was one called A Kiss from Mr Fitzgerald a few years ago. And whenever the character had to wear a piece of clothing, I just naturally put her in something that actually existed from the time. I didn't make up a dress or anything like that and just seemed like the right thing to do. And then I began to get messages from readers saying they really enjoyed that kind of thing. And so then the first book that was really quite fashion focused, I suppose, was The Paris Seamstress. And um, I hadn't realised until then that there were so few historical novels about the fashion industry mm. um, and with fashion kind of storylines. And again, readers seem to really love that. So it's just been something that I've kept doing. And I'm very grateful that I can put my shelf of fashion history books to very good use. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but I think the um, the various television series that are set in a certain period, I think that sort of um, made people look a, li- a little differently not only period things, but like, I mean, historical period things. But if you look at, uh, um, oh, I can't think of a couple of them now, but the they're set in the war, but in England, but, but their clothing is very practical. But at least you see it. At least you see it. Yeah, yeah. Maybe Downton Abbey was one of the first places where people began to really see historical costume and dress and go wow it's beautiful and start sharing photos of that and you know I feel like you're right you know television obviously being so visual has really helped to make people begin to appreciate fashion because I always say fashion is art and people are like oh no it's not but it is art (laughs) Um, and you know I think those sorts of things help people to understand and appreciate that um and particularly you know a a couture gown which obviously none of us can ever afford to own um but you know the the amount of work that goes into something like that it's quite extraordinary um i actually i love following dior on instagram because they often put videos up of the the process of putting together one of their gowns and you see all the work that goes into it and it's just quite extraordinary um yeah yeah. (laughs) well um i just uh i'm in the theater um i do well i was doing some theater work and and I used to love it when you had a costume designer who really went to the period and we had the corsets and the, you know, that and that doesn't happen very often. It's too expensive. And mind you, I was I'm always very glad that I didn't have to wear a corset in my life because, <laughs> you know, the, the, the restriction would have just about killed me, I think. Yeah, I know. And, you know, it's one of the really interesting things about, um, you know, again, being able to, to research these kinds of things. Uh, last year, in fact, when I was writing The Paris Secret, um, 
I, it's about a, a wardrobe of Dior gowns partly. And I wanted to look on the inside of a Dior gown to see what that was like. Cause I'd heard that they were almost constructed architecturally on the inside. And I was lucky enough to go over to the powerhouse museum in Sydney and look through their archival collection of Dior gowns and, and touch them and look inside them. Oh. And you know, that's when I realized that, you know, with a Dior, you didn't need corsets or underwear. It was all built into the gown. You know, everything you needed was all there so yeah, that yeah. you didn't need elaborate petticoats to give the gown its shape. It was constructed so that it had its shape and it kept its shape no matter what. And yeah, it's, you know, the, I look back at the things that I've been able to do as a researcher in order to write my books and I think, wow, I'm a pretty lucky woman. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I think um, well, you might long to wear something like, um, uh, like a 50s gown but then uh it's prohibitive because you could never get anyone to make it now I don't think there are only people who are like who work for the opera house and who make all those beautiful costumes but you you just wouldn't have the opportunity to to wear anything like that simply because of the prohibitive cost you know yes exactly exactly and you also need a maid to get you into and out of those things they have so many and closures and I don't know I don't know I always say you could never wear something like that out on a hot date because you could never get out of it at the end of the night exactly you'd have to send him home you know leave me at the front door that's what you'd have to do I I always think of that lovely scene in Gone with the Wind when Mammy is is doing up the corset and she keeps going smaller smaller tighter tighter tighter. and I think it was I think her waist was only supposed to be about 16 inches yeah, no. oh dear oh dear oh dear no I just could not do that no. well, um we've we've nearly come to the end of the time uh, Natasha I don't want to go I'd like to stay here and talk to you forever but um <laughs> it's been such a delight to talk to you why not dip your toes into your summer stories from Newcastle Libraries simply visit the library lounge on the Newcastle Libraries app or the website newcastle.nsw.gov.au slash library is there anything else that you would like to talk about? I could touch on maybe the Goering catalogue, which is part of the Riviera oh, House. Yes, yes. And we haven't talked about that, so maybe I can talk a little bit about that perhaps. Yes. Um, because that's, I guess, that was one of the original ideas I had that kind of kicked off the book, I suppose, when I read about the publication of the Goering catalogue, which was in 2015, in fact. So the Goering catalogue was... Herman Goering's catalogue of artworks that he had stolen during the war. He had art historians compile this book that listed all of the artworks, had photographs of the artworks, the artist's name, the title of the painting, and he noted down which room it would hang in his mansion called Caranol after the war because he put them into storage during the war because he didn't want them to be damaged by air raids and that sort of thing. Rose Valland actually came by Goering's catalogue Historians think it was around 1946, but nobody actually knows for sure because even though Rose was heavily involved with working with the Allied Art Looting Investigation Unit to track down the stolen artworks and restore them to the rightful owners, she never showed anyone the Goering catalogue and that she had it. So it's a bit of a mystery where she found it and who gave it to her and and the big mystery is why she never told anyone that she had it. Um, And it wasn't until... She was dying, in fact, and she boxed up all of her personal papers and sent them to the um, Ministry of Justice. 
And the Ministry of Justice didn't open the boxes. They stayed all, you know, sealed up in boxes for a number of years until they were then moved to the archives. And then again, years, more years elapsed and someone opened the boxes and started to sort through Rose's possessions and her papers. And they found the Goering catalogue in one of the boxes there. And, you know, nobody had known that this catalogue existed. And I just, I was so fascinated by that because she was so heavily involved in restitution after the war. You know, she wrote a memoir about her experiences at the Jeu de Pomme where she re recorded all the details of each visit Goering made to the museum. And I just thought, I wonder why she never told anyone about this catalogue. You know, what was in there that was so... Um, terrible that this very brave woman couldn't face and so of course being a writer with a very wild and overactive imagination that set my imagination running very wildly and I decided in the Riviera house to come up with a reason as to why she didn't in fact show anyone that catalogue and that there was something in there that just made it very hard for her because I think one of the common themes I've come across with women uh, after the war is that they didn't talk about their experiences a lot. They're very reticent to share what happened. In many ways, that was because it just hurt too much. And also because people didn't believe that women were involved in the resistance. They thought that the resistance was the work of men. And so people would say to them, oh, that didn't actually happen. So you can understand perhaps some of the reasons why perhaps she didn't show that catalogue to anybody. But it's, you know, when I read all of that, I thought, right, that's going to be the means by which I can, you know, link my contemporary and historical storylines because I'll have my main character, Remy, discover a photograph of a painting that she owns in Goering's catalogue, which means that the painting was actually stolen at some time during the war. And so that's what kind of kicks her off on her quest to, um, you know, track down how that painting came into yeah. her hand. So it was through that tiny little article that I read about the catalogue and then discovered the link to Rose and then it all kind of went from there. Yeah. Well, uh, fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. I mean, the fact that Goering and Hitler w were so intent on getting this beautiful artwork, and yet that they where they had no soul. Oh, uh, I know. You know? know. Yeah, you read about Goering, and it, it's just it's oh, it's macabre. You know the things mm. he did. His, Karen Hall was this ostentatious, overdone mansion that he literally intended to cram full of all these thousands of artworks that he'd stolen. He had lions at Karen Hall. He used to walk around with jewel, like emeralds in his pocket and he would roll them around in his fingers. They were like worry beads or something like that. And just, and he was, you know, he was a, a drug addict. Um, he was just a foul, revolting man who, you know, is responsible for so many deaths. And, you know, he was probably the hardest person to to read about in the research, um, as well as Colonel Von Burr, who ran the, the Jeu de Pont Museum, because they, there was no humanity, no. nothing, no redeeming qualities about them. And it just makes you think, gosh, you know, human beings can be just terrible, terrible people. Um, mm. You know, um, with the uh, Costi, uh, you, you gave him a little bit of sympathy. Yes, yeah. Like that he was caught, but then he, then he has to make a decision. You yes, know. absolutely. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> we can be very judgmental, but I think with the Nazi situation, <laughs> there is only one judgment there. Um, they were evil and it really 
absolutely boggles the mind that they got away with so much um, for so long. I mean, not just for not just the war years, but from 1933. You absolutely, know. yes. Yeah. It went yeah. on for years, years yeah. earlier than the war. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Also, the fact that Hitler came to the to the uh, I think that was really interesting. I mean, he did go there, but the fact that you you've had him come there and perusing the artworks, you know, in their arrogance, their absolute arrogance. It's just like, you know, how could someone who is actually has so many lives in their hands, like armies, yeah. um, be looking at art galleries of stolen art? Yeah. Extraordinary. It is extraordinary. And to be in Paris, which was the centre of of the art world, really, when I went to Paris um, with my daughter, we, we stood on, you know, there's always that photo of Hitler and I think the Eiffel Tower is in the front and yes. he's standing on like a like a, yeah. um, a balcony yeah. sort of thing. And I, I stood there and I said, oh, Em, there's this famous photo of Hitler when they came, when came to Paris. And I said, it just gives me the shivers to think that he was actually standing here, you know. He wanted to, um, you know, have Paris as a jewel in his kind of crown of, of territories, but he only ever visited it on that one occasion. So. Yes, yeah. And thank God he didn't give an order to destroy Paris because yeah. uh, he was going to at one stage, wasn't he? Yeah, he, and he did give the order, but um, luckily the German commanders in Paris at the time ignored it. You know, they did actually save the city, so um, we're very lucky. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. Okay, well, I have run out of questions for you, Natasha. It's been been such a delight to talk to you, and uh, particularly when I was so nervous about, because this is the first one I've done. Oh, wonderful. It was lovely to chat to you. It's always lovely to chat to someone who's A, read the book, and B, enjoyed the book. That makes the interview so much easier for me. (laughs) It must be hard if you've got somebody who didn't like the book. I mean, people can be very rude you know (laughs) yes you have to develop a thick skin as an author and just understand that not every book is for everyone just like I don't enjoy every book I read so I totally accept that (laughs) (laughs) well I just don't know what to do with you now um obviously I can just say goodbye and get okay. out of the room and I will um, listen to the podcast later. So thank you very much for having me. I really appreciate it. Oh, no, it was just wonderful. And I can hardly wait for the, the next book I'm going to read from you. Okay. Wonderful. Thank you. Take care. I will. Same to you. Bye-bye. Thanks so much for listening to Your Summer Story series by Newcastle Libraries Real. Turn the page on our next podcast or go back to our original Your Summer Story season with authors like Trent Dalton, Craig Sylvie, Steve Conti, Tia Cooper and more. Thanks to Newcastle Libraries Real. Thanks for listening to Your Summer Stories from Newcastle Libraries. Why not take a dip and a sip, then rate and review us wherever you listen. 